healed. Acts, as Jesus preached. The epistles, including Hebrews being one of them, is Jesus explained. And Revelation, as Jesus expected. That's a great way to look at Scripture. It's a really simple way to look at Scripture. In the epistle of Hebrews, the author is drawing heavily on the predictions from the Old Testament of Christ. And, and Hebrews is an, one of the clearest explanations of who Christ is. Explanation of his superiority. He's already explained that Jesus is greater than the angels in chapter 1, Moses in chapter 2, Joshua in chapters 3 and 4, even Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is greater than the high priest and priesthood of the Old Testament. That's what the last three chapters has been focusing on. Because one of the major arguments that a first century converted Jew would have to face is you no longer have a high priest. If you're saying that the, that the Mosaic priesthood is set aside, where's your priest? How are you going to go forward? How are you going to get your, your sins covered? Where's the sacrifice for your sin? That would be the natural question of the first century Jew to a converted Jew. Who is it that mediates between you and God? So before turning to write about the covenant and the tabernacle and the sacrifice, the author pauses here. He pauses in these six verses and he sums up how Jesus is a superior priest. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 8. God's word says, Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who are offering gifts according to the law. But they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. We're going to stop there. The author has just finished making the point in the last three chapters about Jesus' superiority as the great high priest because he is an eternal high priest. That's the point of, one of the points of Melchizedek, right? In chapter 7. And he has a better cure than the priesthood. Not just bulls and goats and pigeons, but himself. That's what he's pointing to in verse 4. 
Back in chapter 7, if you glance back there at, at verse 27, he, he tells about this sacrifice. He died once for all. That's the sacrifice. You know, when he's talking there about now if there were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 3, he also has something to offer himself. That's what the author of the Hebrews is, is trying to explain. He is the high priest. He has something to offer. He's offered himself once and for all. That is what we were celebrating last week at Easter, wasn't it? That's what the whole focus was, the whole buildup of, of Easter is. And before moving on, the author takes a breather in the beginning of chapter 8 by saying, now the point of what we are saying is this. Many people believe that, that this point in the, the uh, letter to the Hebrews is, is kind of the epicenter of the, of the book. Some people believe that, that everything led up to this and everything that he's going to say looks back at this. The main point of what I'm saying, the author says. In the Greek that word there, kephaleon, he's, it's, it's used there, the main point of what I'm saying, to sum up, in conclusion, he's saying. This is the main point. And here the author takes a breath before going forward and he wants to make sure his readers understand without a doubt that Jesus' high priesthood is superior. And he uses two images to do that in these six verses. And the first image is there found in verse 1. Jesus is seated. If you're in a Bible underliner, that's a good one to underline. He is seated, declaring that Jesus' work is superior. Jesus being at the right hand of God the Father is, is a common thing we read in the New Testament. It's, it's probably said over a dozen times in different places. Jesus is seated, is at the right hand of God the Father. In 1 Peter 3, we read, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers that have all been subjected to him. It's a place of power. We all know that. Sometimes we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, right? Like in Acts chapter 7, when, when Stephen is being stoned, he's, with his last breath, he looks up, and what does he see? He declares, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that was it for the Jews. They picked up bigger stones and killed him. But most times we read in the New Testament, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That's what we read in Hebrews three different times. He's seated at the right hand of God. If you remember the opening verses of this great book, we read there in chapter 1, verse 3, he's the radiance, Jesus speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, it says, he sat down at the right hand of God Almighty. That's the setup of the whole book. Now, when a person sits, there's a several reasons you can sit. You can be tired. You want to take a break. You want to relax. It can also mean you just want to rest. It can also mean something else. 
Carrie and I have never bought furniture. We've never bought furniture. All the furniture we've ever had has always been given to us by other people, by my parents, by her, her parents, by, by friends. We've never bought furniture. About a month ago, we bought our first furniture. We bought a big, comfy chair. An electric chair. Yeah. Big, overstuffed, has buttons. You can get into the perfect position. And when I go to that chair now, my day's over. You know, it's, it's when the kids are, have been sent up to bed and I get into that chair and I, I use the little buttons there and get into the right position, I'm done. My day's over. I don't have a to-do list that I'm going to go, okay, I've got to get to that. My day is over when I sit into that chair. What the author wants to communicate by Jesus being seated is it's completed. His work is done. It's, it's finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done for your salvation. Hebrews 10, 10, chapter 10, verse 11, talks about the Levitical priesthood standing daily giving sacrifices. Intentionally, standing daily. Their, their work was never done. There was no provision for the Levitical priesthood to sit down. They stood. If you look back into Exodus where the tabernacle plans were given, there's a, there's a table that's given. There's, a, there's lampstands. There's an altar. There's a curtain. But no chair. You ever wonder that? There were no chairs in the temple. No chairs in the, in the holies or in the holy of holies. Either one. No provision to sit down because their work was never done. They had to constantly be giving these sacrifices for sin. I would love for you to to look back and read Exodus and then read Leviticus and, and the amount of animals and bloodshed that had to be done on a daily basis was unbelievable. It was continual. And you as a person, every Saturday, you would be leading up another animal for your sins and symbolically placing them on the animals and then the priest would would kill that animal. And then the next Saturday, you would lead another animal up and another and another and another and another. The the work was never done. Your sins were, were never atoned for. They were covered but the debt was never paid. The symbolism here is rich. The author wants to draw our attention to it and say, the sacrifices they were making were never sufficient. The sin was never atoned for fully. By contrast, the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus is seated. It's done. Once and for all. Turn ahead one page and just read with me in chapter 10, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered 
for all time a single sacrifice for her, for his sins he sat down at the right hand of God it is finished when he cried that on the cross he meant it sin is paid for that's the hard work that Jesus did for your and my salvation and and brothers and sisters it was hard work what Jesus did was hard was not easy. It was hard living that perfectly righteous life. It was hard obeying God every moment of every day for 33 plus years. You know, we tend to slip into Apollinarianism. That was an early church heresy that believed that Jesus was human physically, but that his mind was divine. You know, that he, that he did feel things like hunger and, and tiredness, but his mind was the mind purely of God. And the, thus, he never really struggled. In Hebrews 4.15, that he was tempted in every way, every way, yet did not sin. Jesus struggled to earn the righteousness that we benefit from. We have to realize that his suffering and death in our place was hard work. Not just his life, but going to the cross was hard for Jesus. I mean, that is ultimately seen in the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? You know, where, where he implored community, be with me, help me, pray for me, pray with me, sweating blood. It was hard going to the cross. But through his suffering and death, he paid the debt to God for our sin. He took the wrath of God that should be ours on himself. Thus we are able to be forgiven for our sins. And finally, we realize that his resurrection was hard work. His life, his suffering death, and his resurrection was hard work. He submitted to laying in that tomb for three days. You ever thought about that? We say that in the, in the Apostles' Creed. And, and, and the Bible tends to make a big deal about him being buried, right? It's always, he, and he was buried. The, but the Apostles' Creed puts it, he, was, he descended into hell. That just means he, he was actually dead for three days. His body was dead. But he rose from the dead on that third day. That is the glorious truth that we just celebrated one week week ago. He rose from the dead. The power of God applied to him, rose him from the dead, killing the curse of sin and death. And he alone is able to offer eternal life because he's alive, right? We don't serve, what's that song? We don't serve a a, a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior, is that it? He's, He's alive. He's actually alive. You can't say that about Confucius. You can't say that about Buddha. You can't say that about Muhammad. The person that we love and that loves us is alive. And if you turn and believe in him, the Bible says you too will live, just like Jesus, when you die. If you turn from your sin, in other words, if you realize you're a sinner, we just said in in, uh, in 
Sunday school earlier, that's the foundation. You cannot call yourself a Christian, a born-again believer, however you want to put it, unless you realize that you are a sinner in desperate position with God. So if you turn and you realize, I need a salvation outside of myself. I need forgiveness that, that my mom can't give me, my pastor can't give me, my inner self can't give me. If you turn and then believe in Jesus, trust that Jesus, what Jesus did, he took the wrath of God for you. Trust that Jesus paid your sin debt. Trust that Jesus offers you life because of his resurrection. That's the gospel. You will be saved. In other words, as the Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews puts it, trust that Jesus is seated. It's completed. The hard work of his salvation is done. And we do really well to remember that for two reasons. Because we have two proclivities. Our first proclivity is to tempt our temptation towards self-righteousness or works righteousness or earning our way to God or doing good works. We all slip into that. In May of 2006, the Journal of Air and Waste Management published a study on the side effects of indoor air purifiers. Surprisingly, the study found that a certain ionic air purifier actually produced pollution. Ionic air purifiers function by charging airborne particles through a process called ionization. Theoretically, the air is cleaner after passing through these purifiers because there are fewer particles. However, the study found that through this ionization process, ozone is produced. Now, ozone is really good when it's way up high in the sky but it's really bad when it's down here low to the ground. You know what we call it when it's low to the ground? Smog. It's a pollutant. In the same way, when we slip into making ourselves clean before God by relying on our own goodness rather than the cross of Christ, we make ourselves actually unclean before God. When you find yourself trying to earn God's love and we all slip into that, when you find yourself trying to rely on your own goodness, and we all slip into that, just remember and preach the gospel to yourself, Jesus is seated. It's completed. I can't add anything. It's done. The second way we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is seated is when we're tempted toward crushing guilt. Some of us are tempted towards guilt. That's just how we're built or nurtured. A new study has found that the average person holds 13 secrets, five of which you've never told anybody in your whole life. It's not a secret, and it's not the secret itself that will haunt you. It's the mental energy that it takes when you're thinking about those things. New research shows that some people actually feel physically heavier when they're burdened with a secret. And that extra weight can skew how you even navigate life and the decisions you make. For some of us, we carry around this crushing guilt. That's just 
That's just how our proclivity is in our mind. We just hold on to guilt. We feel heavy. Your past sins haunt you. Your current sins crush you. And you spend tons of mental energy just just churning away on those things. You excuse how you how you go through life. When tempted, if you're that type of person, when you're tempted with that guilt, you have to remember to preach the gospel to yourself at that very moment. And one way to do that is to remember that Jesus is seated. It's done. It's finished. He paid for my sins, past, present, and future. Preach that sweet gospel to yourself. Scripture tells us over and over, Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for sin once and for all. You have to remember that. The person you speak to the most is yourself. Preach that gospel to yourself. Second image that the writer uses to reinforce Jesus' superiority is his superior location. Look with me at verse 2 in our text. The writer says, a a minister in the holy place. He's talking about Jesus. Start back at 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Skip down to verse 5. They serve, talking about the the priesthood here on earth, the Levitical priesthood, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he he instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. What the author is is getting across is that Jesus ministers in a true tabernacle, in a better place, in a better location. I don't know if any of you know Plato's writings, but Plato wrote a, a book called The Republic, and in that he is talks in some one section about the effect of the lack of education on our nature. And he uses a famous allegory. It's the allegory of the, of the cave. Do you remember this? In it, Plato describes a group of people that have been chained to the inside wall of this cave all their lives, and they face a blank wall. People watch shadows on this wall. Objects passing in front of a great light behind him. Thus the shadows become reality for these people. They've never seen anything else. They know no different. They don't even have have a desire to break out of this prison because they have no other reality. Only shadows. In the allegory, one day the, the prisoners actually break their bonds and they, and they go out of the cave. And they discover that the great light source is the sun. And they realize that the shadows were not the reality that they thought they were. Only a representation. Now we have to be careful here not to slip into Platonism. But the writer of Hebrews wants to make a point here. 
he's saying something different but similar. And what he's saying is where Jesus is ministering right now in heaven is far superior in completeness, perfection, and permanence than the tabernacle that was built. Because Jesus is serving in the real tabernacle in heaven, while the priests on earth are serving at the copy, the shadow of the one in heaven. Now, going back into Exodus, you see that God wanted everything to be made according to how he was told. That's, that's said right here. He's quoting Exodus 25.40. Make everything, Moses, exactly as I told you to make it. God was serious about the representation on earth, giving an idea of what the heavenly tabernacle was like. And he was serious about it. And, 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 and so that the workers couldn't just make the tabernacle the way they felt like it. They couldn't just, you know, go from practicality. Well, we can't find gopher wood. Can we, can we do it with, with this wood? You know, the purple isn't good. Why don't we just make that red? You know, it's really expensive to coat these things with gold. Why don't we just leave them and I'll put a nice shellac on it? I'm learning about shellac this week. It'll look really great. No, do it exactly as I said. Had to be made precisely in order to reflect, not precisely, heaven, but appropriately, properly. And the application here, brothers and sisters, is in what we're doing right here and right now. Worshiping God. We're not given a section in the New Testament that says, here is what you're supposed to do. Here's what the building is supposed to look at, and here's what the worship service is supposed to look like. But the New Testament does show us how God wants to be appropriately and properly worshipped. That's why our worship service is not put together with pragmatism or practicality. It's not ruled by those things. It's not like Old Testament worship. It is like Old Testament worship. God has designed the worship service with Christ at its center. So, that's why we have Christ-centered preaching. That's why, that's why what we're doing right here, right now, at this particular moment in the worship service, is the most important thing you can be doing in your whole week, is listening to God's word being expounded upon with Christ lifted up. With Christ-centered music. Mark and I work hard to design the music thematically around, around the theme that scripture is going to be preached on. We work hard at making sure the words of the music is Christ-centered. We've even gotten it down to somewhat of a science, haven't we? We, we call songs one, twos, and threes. If a song is a one, it is explicit with the gospel. You're going to hear about the penal substitution of Christ. You're going to hear about the, the received righteousness that you have in Christ. You're going to hear about the resurrection of, of, of Christ. And we have two songs where the gospel is implicit. 
We might sing about blood. We might sing about forgiveness, where the gospel is implied. And then we have three songs, where it's scriptural, and maybe the gospel is mentioned, maybe it isn't, but at least it's scriptural. We're going to praise God for who he is, the characteristics of God. So we have Christ-centered music. We have Christ-centered prayer. You just heard a wonderful example by our brother Stephen. Exalting Christ again and again throughout the prayer. Because it all centers around him. Our prayers should orbit around the gospel. We have Christ-centered baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those things that, that show baptism, what Christ has done for you and entering into the covenant community and, and remaining in the covenant community. We have Christ-centered public reading of scriptures where you're going to hear from Christ, uh, God's word itself who Christ is. We have Christ-centered benedictions, uh, an encouragement to go out into the world at the end of the service with Christ on your mind. We do these things and we hold off the tide of pragmatism. And there is a tide. And sometimes it's really strong. Because we believe that just like the tabernacle was a shadow of what it was like in heaven, new covenant worship is a shadow of what it's going to be like in heaven. Isn't that cool? This is a shadow. A glimpse of what it's going to be like in heaven. That's exactly what the author of the Hebrews drives at. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read for you in chapter 12. He says this, You, talking about the people, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about worship here. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's you and me. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Brothers and sisters, when we worship, when we worship, when we gather and worship on Sunday, there's more going on here than we can see. Do you realize that? That's, as they used to say in the 60s, that's pretty heavy. There's more going on here. We gather with spiritually with those in heaven. That's why we should take worship so seriously. So, if your mind has wandered, if your eyelids have gotten droopy you should repent of that that's an opportunity to repent but also as we gather in heaven in this heavenly worship we should take worship seriously because it's so joyful it's joyous I mean just this afternoon just read Revelation 4 and 5. That's what it looks like to worship in heaven. Today, this morning, right now, we've been gathered up into heaven 
and we join in worshiping the triune God that we just read about in Hebrews 12. Innumerable angels, saints who have passed on, praising the mediator of the new covenant seated in the heavenly tabernacle. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, how scripture just comes together like this. It's perfect. Paul Hahn of Ligonier Ministries writes this, and I'll end with this. Even though we cannot see it or touch it, heaven is as real and as vital to us in our worship as oxygen is to our respiration. In fact, worship is a kind of spiritual respiration. We breathe air into our lungs that we cannot see, and we live. In the same way, as we worship, we breathe heaven into our souls, and we live, filling our hearts with unseen, life-giving atmosphere of heaven. Thus, worship requires faith, because faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith convinces us that we are in the realm of heaven as we worship, and it encourages us to breathe deeply that we might become more fully alive. Brothers and sisters, breathe deeply. Father God, we thank you for your worship. We thank you for your son. We thank you how you have saved us and brought us here today intentionally. Thank you for giving our souls a new breath this morning. And forgive us, Lord, forgive me as I come to your worship less than enthused sometimes, tired, bored, thinking of other things. Help us, Lord, to worship you. We need you, Spirit, to help us worship. In Jesus' name, amen.